0: I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Norma and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program, Upcoming Trends in Renal Cell cancer and this is a an important call for all of you on this program today. Um, and it's a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And I also want to call out specifically to two cancer, kidney cancer organizations, Kidney Cancer Association and Kidney Cancer Canada, who, have, um, who are wonderful resources for all of you on the call and also have really helped all of these uh, um, different cancer organizations and the two kidney cancer organizations have really helped to spread the word about this program. And because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today, We have over 325 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, so from different parts of the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have a number of international participants from Argentina, Canada, India, Nigeria, Portugal, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So a bit of a global call as well. And um, today's program um, is supported uh, by. Pfizer, Bristol-Myers Squibb, iSci, Inc., Novartis Oncology, an independent educational grant from Merck and Company, Inc., and a charitable contribution from Exalexis, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support to this program today. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Pavlos Misal. And Dr. Misal is going to address an overview of renal cell cancer. He's actually going to present to you the entire um, update on um, the new trends in the treatment of renal cell cancer. So it's really my, my great uh, pleasure and privilege to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Misal.
2: Uh, thank you for this. Um, what I'm going to start with is a general overview of kidney cancer. The medical term that we like to use is renal cell carcinoma or renal cell cancer. They're all interchangeable, so whether I call it kidney cancer or renal cell carcinoma, it's the same thing. And um, renal cell carcinoma is the sixth most common um, cancer among men in the U.S., and the eighth most common cancer amongst women in the U.S. So it's, it's a pretty common disease to have. Um, there are about 62,000 new cases of renal cell carcinoma in the United States per year. And um, renal cell carcinoma is 50 times more common in men compared with women. And it predominantly, it usually occurs in the sixth to eighth decade of life with an average age of diagnosis of 64 years, but it can certainly happen much earlier than that as well. And when it comes to risk factors for kidney cancer, there are some of the usual ones like smoking can be a risk factor for developing this disease. High blood pressure is a known risk factor. Obesity is as well. And then there are other um, diseases specific to the kidney, like po- what we call polycystic kidney disease, which is basically a disease that gives a lot of cysts in the kidney that can increase the risk for developing kidney cancer. Occupational exposures have been associated with kidney cancer in some cases, and these include um, petroleum by products like gasoline or cadmium, asbestos, and asbestos. And then another um, potential risk factor for kidney cancer is taking um, um, analgesics, um, pain medications like too much aspirin or non-steroidals or even Tylenol at very high doses, and they're certainly not bound to cause cancer always, but they are known risk factors. And another risk factor is, first-degree relatives with kidney cancer. So if you have such relatives, then you are more likely to develop kidney cancer. And there are also some subtypes of kidney cancer, um, the more rare types of kidney cancer that can be associated, for example, with sickle cell trait or disease. Um, These are blood disorders that are usually found amongst um, African Americans or Africans and they increase the risk for a rare variant of kidney cancer called renal medullary carcinoma. Um, Another risk factor is prior chemotherapy that can increase the risk for a variant of kidney cancer called translocation kidney cancer. And so if you have received chemotherapy for some other cancer in your life, you are at a higher risk for developing this. Um, You know, many patients ask um, often, should they be tested um, in a genetics clinic? And the answer is, this is something that obviously should be considered by your treating physician but some things that the treating physicians consider are whether or not you had a lot of first-degree relatives with kidney cancer at what age did your kidney cancer appear? So, usually, if you're younger than 46 years old, and especially if you're younger than 40 years old, then this is something that you should seriously consider being um, checked in a genetics clinic for a possible hereditary syndrome that might be associated with kidney cancer. Um, If you have kidney cancer in both your kidneys occurring either simultaneously or at different time points, then that's also another consideration for genetics evaluation. Or if you have certain other tumors that are associated with syndromes that are hereditary and can be associated with kidney cancer, and those tumors can be um, tumors like hemangioblastoma, um, pheochromocytoma, and um, tumors in your middle ear. These are some of the considerations that we have whenever we think whether somebody should be tested for genetic diseases. Um, The most common mutation that we find in kidney cancer is something called the loss of one chromosome called chromosome 3P. It's actually an arm of chromosome 3 called 3P the um, small arm of chromosome 3 essentially. It happens in more than 90% of patients with the most common form of kidney cancer called clear cell kidney cancer. So the most common form of kidney cancer is clear cell. Um, It occurs in about 75% of Kidney cancer cases are clear cell kidney cancer, and they will almost all of them have loss of chromosome 3P. And interestingly enough, you know, one of the updates that we've had in the in, in, in last year was that this loss of 3P happens very early, actually in childhood or adolescence, um, um, in many cases, even though we do not um, realize. And it, take, it takes many, many decades, sometimes even up to 50 years until this initial event turns, out, um, turns into a full-blown kidney cancer that will be diagnosed. Um, so why is this chromosome 3P important? It is important because it includes genes that are very critical for clear cell kidney cancer and for other kidney cancers as well. So the first such gene included in this chromosome is VHL. VHL is a very important gene for clear cell kidney cancer, and it is inactivated in the vast majority of clear cell kidney cancers. The second most common mutation in kidney cancer is is called PBRM1, also very important in uh, all kidney cancers, but clear cell um, in particular. The third most common is called SETD2, S-E-T-D-2. The fourth most common is called BAP1. All of these, these are the most common mutations found in kidney cancer, and they're all contained in the same chromosome, chromosome 3P. And so what happens when somebody develops kidney cancer is that the first event after they lose chromosome 3P, the second event uh, essentially is that they lose the other Um, VHL gene because we as humans contain most of our genes um, we have them in two versions so we always have two copies of our genes So a patient with clear cell kidney cancer will lose the first copy of the VHL gene when they lose the chromosome 3P. And then over the years, something will happen and they will lose the second copy of the VHL gene and then cancer will start growing. And then later, um, as the cancer evolves, they might lose the second copy of the pbrm1 gene the sedd2 gene and the bap1 gene and as we are understanding now this can affect the behavior of the kidney cancer. So these are all things that we've learned in the last five years only. Um, talking now more about kidney cancer, giving a general overview with regards to the extent of the disease, I would say broadly that you can divide kidney cancer, the extent of kidney cancer, into what we would call localized disease, meaning broadly that it is confined to the kidney, that, meaning that it has not escaped the kidney, And about 60% of cases will be like that. Um, When it comes, you know, to states and many patients ask, you know, what state is my disease, usually localized disease is what we will call stage 1 or stage 2, sometimes stage 3. But there are some stage 3 patients that have a little bit more extensive disease than just being confined to the kidney. The uh, when the disease is is a little bit more extensive, we call that regional disease, where essentially the cancer has started escaping the kidney and spreading to other um, tissues, and the first tissue it's going to spread to is the lymph nodes, and. Um, in particular, the lymph nodes that are nearby the kidney, which we call them regional lymph nodes, about seventeen that 's one seven percent of cases will uh, with kidney cancer will um, have regional disease, will present with regional disease. And then the rest, about 15 to 17 percent of cases, will have broadly metastatic disease, which we call um, stage 4, where the cancer will have spread to distant organs. And this can be either lymph nodes that are further away than just from around the kidney, or the lungs, or the bone, or the brain, or many other areas. One of the Unique things about kidney cancer, and particularly the most common subtype, clear cell kidney cancer, is that it really can spread anywhere. It's one of these few cancers where you really—it's um, it, not extremely uncommon to say, you know, you have um, metast- you have the cancer in your kidney, and then the cancer may have spread in your pinky which, you know, you don't see it with other cancers, um, it can spread anywhere. It can spread to the intestine, to various other organs, and this is something that we as clinicians keep um, in mind. The other unique feature about clear cell kidney cancer, other than the fact that it can spread to many different um, and diverse organs, is that, is that it can recur, meaning it can come back even many decades after um, the cancer uh, has been resected. So, for example, the longest I have heard of is a patient who had his kidney removed 50 years ago and then the cancer came back 50, that's five zero years later. Obviously, the longer it takes for the kidney cancer to come back, the more indolent it is. So even if it comes back after 50 years, it will probably never grow to cause any symptoms or to you know affect quality of life at all as I already said kidney cancer is not a single entity so there are many different subtypes of kidney cancer and this is important because the different subtypes are managed differently um, clear cell kidney cancer as I mentioned before is the most common form of kidney cancer about seventy-five, seventy 70 to 75 percent of cases are like that um, and it's called clear cell because when the pathologists look at it under the microscope, the cells look clear. So that's why it's called clear cell. The second most common form of kidney cancer is what we call papillary kidney cancer, and it tends to behave a little bit differently than clear cell kidney cancer. And within the papillary kidney cancer spectrum, there are many, many other um, subtypes. There is type 1 papillary, type 2 papillary, many different subtypes that um, have different clinical behavior. Um, Papillary kidney cancer is about 15 to 20% of all kidney cancer cases. The third most common is what we call chromophobe kidney cancer. That's about 5% of all kidney cancer cases, and it tends to be usually much more indolent, meaning less aggressive, less likely to spread than clear cell kidney cancer or papillary kidney cancer. Then there are other subtypes um, that are usually you know, less than 1% of all kidney cancer cases like renal medullary carcinoma that I mentioned before that's associated with um, the blood disorder sickle cell trait or disease, or others like translocation kidney cancer, collecting duct kidney cancer. There are many, many, many different subtypes and it's important to know which one you have Because things like the management of these diseases or how it will affect your life can be very different depending on the subtype. Another important thing um, that's useful for patients to know is what we call sarcomatoid or rhabdoid de-differentiation. And that's often found in the pathology reports of kidney cancer, and patients often ask me, what does that mean? Um, What it means is this, as I told you, clear cell kidney cancer is named clear cell because that's what it looks like under the microscope, but sometimes those cells may start evolving, they may start changing, and when that happens, they may start looking like something else. And so if they start looking more like a kind of cancer called sarcoma, even though they're not sarcomas but they look like it then they're called sarcomatoid. If they start looking more like a cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma, even though they are not rhabdomyosarcoma, then we call them rhabdoid. And the the rest of the cancer can be clear cell or can be any of the other subtypes. And by the way, usually Uh, and I didn't mention that before, we have, as I said, the clear cell kidney cancer and the other subtypes and all of the other subtypes um, are part of the umbrella term called non-clear cell kidney cancer. So non-clear cell kidney cancer is every kidney cancer that's not clear cell, so papillary, chromophobe, and the rest. So... Any of those cancers can have this sarcomatoid or rhabdoid differentiation, and that's important for us clinicians to keep in mind because that means that the cancer is evolving and might need different types of um, therapeutic approaches. Um, Now, when it comes, talking about therapy, when it comes to, to, to therapies, um, I would say that in general, in, in, in cancer and in kidney cancer in particular, we can, um, um, we can um, categorize our treatments into what we would call local treatments, meaning, meaning treatments that affect the cancer in a particular area, and that would be a local treatment would be surgery, because you know you remove the cancer from a particular area, like the kidney, by removing the whole kidney, or you know the lungs, etc. Um, and then radiation is also a local therapy, localized therapy, because it goes specifically to a particular area and not through your whole body. And then the other broad category is what we call systemic therapies. And these are therapies that do not just go to a specific local area, but go all over your body and can potentially kill cancer cells. And within the systemic therapy spectrum, there are many you know, types of systemic therapies. The one that are some of the most important in kidney cancer are what we call targeted therapies um, which are basically drugs that are designed to target certain molecules in uh, the kidney cancer cells and another type of systemic therapy that's often now used in kidney cancer are immunotherapies which are basically therapies that stimulate your body's immune system to recognize and, and target cancer cells. Then another type of systemic therapy which is not very often used Um, it's almost never used for clear cell kidney cancer but it can be used for other types of kidney cancer is typical chemotherapy you know the chemotherapy that has been given for many decades in other cancers is not effective in clear cell kidney cancer but it can be effective in other subtypes of kidney cancer. Now. If your disease is um, localized, meaning it hasn't um, gone beyond the kidney, then doing surgery um, can um, very often um, result in a cure, meaning the cancer will never come back. Um, One thing to keep in mind is um, what we call in the medical term adjuvant therapy. Adjuvant therapy is essentially... Therapy that we give systemic therapy that we give after the surgery, and why would, we, why would we do that? We would do it because no matter what type of imaging you can envision, whether it 's a CAT scan, a PET scan, an MRI, whatever, um, it can never um, have a higher resolution than than one millimeter in size, and for a tumor, a cancer to get to one millimeter it needs to contain millions of cells. So you need millions of cancer cells in order to get to one millimeter, which is the best we can detect with any imaging that we can do. And so somebody can have um, hundreds or even thousands of cancer cells in areas that we cannot detect. And so adjuvant therapy is being Given in order to potentially kill those cancer cells so that they never grow uh, enough to create problems. And so, as you can imagine, we can never know whether those cancer cells exist or not in, in, in a patient's body. They're essentially invisible to us. But we might consider adjuvant therapy in patients that have high risk of having those cancer cells. Unfortunately, we do not have many good adjuvant um, therapy options for kidney cancer. There is one approved, um, but it is not very often used um, because, and that that is sunitinib, um, but it is not very often used because um, it's not as effective effective as we would have liked. But it is a consideration and I have prescribed it to some of my patients. Um, Now, if the cancer is metastatic, then things change. And as I said, metastatic means that the cancer has spread to different organs. In that case, um, we only use or we mainly use localized therapies Um, in very specific scenarios which your treating treating physicians will consider and those localized therapies can be either surgery or radiation but we don't always use them. Our main tool in uh, metastatic disease is systemic therapies and as I said those can be targeted therapies, immunotherapies or sometimes chemotherapies and you know the good news is that um systemic therapies, um, we have many more in our toolbox um, than we did even 10 years ago. So, you know, since 2009, there has been FDA approvals of multiple new therapies um, for kidney cancer that are helping our patients. Um, And I would say now, um, going into that, I would like to talk as well about the role of precision medicine in, in, in how we decide which treatments to give. Um I mentioned already the genes that are mutated in clear cell kidney cancer. Um but I and I would say that to till now knowing whether these genes are mutated in, in a patient's tumor can help when it comes to prognosis because we can say that certain mutations are associated with more aggressive disease, but they, uh, on their own, have not been able to tell us whether somebody should get a certain treatment as opposed to another treatment. Um, where where we have become though more precise is in determining the prognosis of a patient and usually uh, of a patient with, with metastatic disease. And usually one score that we use is called the IM as in mother D um, as in David, C score, IMDC, and it comes from International Metastatic um, Renal Cell Carcinoma Database Consortium. So it's a risk score that physicians will calculate to see, um, to get a feeling of how aggressive your disease is, and based on that, that might um, change their treatment recommendations. Um, uh, um, there are Some genes sometimes that, if we find them to be mutated, they might help. Um, We have some emerging evidence for that. For example, for papillary kidney cancer, the second most common subtype of kidney cancer, there was a recent report last year that if you have what we call the ALK translocations, which are translocations, it's a molecular event that happens in a certain gene called ALK, then those tumors may be susceptible to certain types of drugs that target these translocations. Um, It's also important to know whether or not um, a tumor has loss of a gene called SMARC-B1. That's very, very, very rare, less than 1% of cancers, but the loss of this gene, which is always lost in a cancer I mentioned before, renal medullary carcinoma, can affect the biology of this cancer. In Our um, use of precision medicine in kidney cancer, a major challenge that we have is what we call heterogeneity, and that's basically a medical term to say that the cancer cells are different even within the same patients. The same patient at different um, locations in their body. So, the cancer cell um, in uh, the pancreas, if it has spread to the pancreas, is different than the cancer cells in the lungs. Or, even different areas of cancer in the lungs can be different. And that is a challenge for us when we try to develop targeted therapies that can address all of these cancer cells. So even having just one mutation that was found on one biopsy does not necessarily mean that you're gonna have that mutation everywhere. Um, as I said, um, in kidney cancer, we have the targeted therapies. Usually, those are given orally, and the ones that are most commonly used are the are ones that target molecules that produce blood vessels and feed cancer cells. So, a lot of these drugs that we use, like sunitinib, pazopanib, cabozantinib, axitinib, all of these drugs um, essentially target such molecules Um, and this is important because as I said for example in clear cell kidney cancer The most common mutation is in the gene called VHL, and that's exactly what that mutation does. It makes um, the tumors have a lot of blood supply, so they get dependent a lot on their blood supply, so if we target their blood vessels, then we get efficacy, and this is why these therapies can be effective, so effective in clear cell kidney cancer. As I mentioned before, immunotherapies are essentially therapies that stimulate our body's immune system to recognize um and, and and target um cancer cells and and so as you can imagine the side effects of these two different um ther- therapeutic um, approaches can be very different because oral targeted therapies you get side effects that are are, are because um the drug may target um the wrong areas in your body in a way so for example if you know it affects your blood circulation your blood supply it can give you high blood pressure or it can impair um, how wounds are healed so that's very different from the type of um, side effects that immunotherapies will have which are basically um, happen because your body's immune system instead of recognizing only cancer cells it may actually start recognizing your normal tissues as something bad. So if it starts recognizing your intestine as something bad, it will give you diarrhea. If it starts recognizing your skin as something bad, it will give a skin rash. If it starts recognizing your lungs, you will have difficulty breathing. If, if it starts recognizing your liver as something bad, you will have, um, you'll have your liver functions change or you might have pain in the area, etc. So that's very different. And sometimes in many patients, that may not even happen at all. Whereas, you know, targeted therapies usually um they will have some kind of side effects that often are are, are manageable. Immunotherapies um in some cases patients never develop um side effects. Um but Sometimes, sometimes they do, and in that case, when patients develop side effects with immunotherapies, how do we address them? We address them by suppressing the immune system. So it makes sense if your side effects are because your immune system is overstimulated. We're going to address them by suppressing it and so how what's the first way to suppress it steroids corticosteroids like prednisone is the first step if that doesn't work and it usually does um, then there are other immunosuppressants that we can use and usually the side effects are not um, permanent then, with regards to to you know updates um, in recent times, I would say that two thousand and eighteen has been a very exciting year for kidney cancer research. We have you know now um, combinations not just using immunotherapy on its own or targeted therapies on their on on their own but combinations of immunotherapy plus the targeted agents. And so um, there is, for example, a trial that was presented um, a few weeks ago called Keynote 426, which is combining um, a targeted drug called axitinib with um, the immunotherapy pembrolizumab. Another one called Javelin 101, which again um, combines the targeted therapy axitinib with the immunotherapy Avelumab. These are now, um, these seem to have efficacy in um, clear cell kidney cancer patients, and I believe that they will expand our therapeutic armamentarium. They will give us more options for patients with kidney cancer. So that's very exciting. There are also um, clinical trials happening as we speak that are testing new ways to stimulate the immune system, um, using new approaches that can be either more efficacious or they can be less toxic. Um, There are also other uh, approaches. As I told you, there are the most common drugs for targeting. The most common targeted drugs basically target the um, cancerous blood supply. But there are now targeted um, drugs that may target the metabolism of the cancer cells that are being tested. Um, There are new targeted drugs that may affect blood supply plus other molecules in different ways. There are cancer vaccines, there are cell-based therapies, there are many things that are being tested to help improve outcomes in patients with um, kidney cancer. Now, going to the side effects, I mentioned already a little bit broadly about about them and about how they can differ depending on the type of systemic therapy that we give. I would say that for patients who have metastatic kidney cancer, quality of life is crucial. It's not just an issue of prolonging somebody's life, but it's also an issue of making sure that the quality of life is good. Um, so, if, for example, somebody has pain as a side effect because can, um, a tumor is growing in a certain area of some, of, of of your body, then that um, that may benefit from localized therapy. So sometimes radiation or surgery can help alleviate that pain, and they can. That's one case where localized therapies can be used in uh, in patients who have metastatic disease. Um, The difference between the oral targeted drugs and immunotherapies is that with the oral targeted drugs, as I alluded before, you kind of know when to expect them. So, you know, you start the therapy and then you start having side effects. And um, the more you're taking them, the longer you're taking them, the more you're having side effects. Whereas with immunotherapies, Side effects can happen unexpectedly. So, you know, often patients ask me, um, should I stay around, um, you know, the hospital for the first few days after receiving my first immunotherapy? And I say no because it's extremely, extremely rare that you will have any side effects. It will feel like water for the for the first few days or, or, or even weeks. Um, when uh, when somebody is um, taking combination immunotherapy uh, where they're taking combination of two drugs that are approved for um, kidney cancer, and those two drugs are nivolumab, otherwise known as Obdivo, and ipilimumab, otherwise known as Gervoy, when somebody gets that combination, they will most of the times not develop side effects after the first infusion, and each infusion is given um, initially every three weeks. Um, most of the uh, side effects will actually start developing after the second or even after the third infusion, so that's, um, that's one main difference with immunotherapy. Um, then you know there there are um, side effects like fatigue that I feel is very important for patients and there are ways that this can be addressed for example by encouraging physical activity etc patients on oral targeted drugs often have diarrhea and this is something that's often happens with these drugs, Um, and in that case, we often um, recommend things like loperamide or Imodium. Um, That's the trade name. Um, We can go up to even 14 or 16 tablets daily to help um, um, control the diarrhea. Sometimes, some patients have been helped by probiotics or even by eating Greek yogurt, Um, but keep in mind that whenever you eat um, um, yogurt and products that contain lactose, if you're lactose intolerant then this this can actually worsen um, the diarrhea. then there are things like metamucil psyllium fibers that um, patients can dilute in applesauce to give you know a better taste, and that has helped sometimes with um, diarrhea from oral targeted agents. Um, and then there are other therapies that you know your physician can try um, if the symptoms persist. Um, and the last thing that I would like to emphasize, and I'll close here, is that communicating with your healthcare team and your healthcare provider is key. Um, Communicating about your quality of life, because at the end of the day, that I think is the most important, um, is key. So decision-making should be based on that aspect, and it can only be optimized, this decision-making, by very um, vigorous communication with your healthcare care providers. And I would say also that at least in our institution at MD Anderson, we are helped a lot by um, what we call the supportive care team. Um, uh, they, they, in other centers, they're called the palliative care team. And this is not, you know, that, oh, we say patient, this is hopeless, so we're sending somebody for palliative care. Not at all. Not at all. Patients who are actually helped um, by such teams um, survive longer and have better quality of life, their symptoms are controlled. So I have found that um, this um, integrated approach and multidisciplinary approach um, Helps. So, you know, I, I focus this way on treating the cancer itself, and then other physicians or other healthcare providers, um, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and nurses help with the many other aspects um, of uh, of this cancer. Dietitians absolutely are extremely helpful as well. Um, so, with this, I will close, and I'll be happy afterwards to answer any questions. Oh,
1: that was really extraordinary! Thank you so much, Dr. Nassal. That was really an amazing presentation, very comprehensive, and and lots of information for everyone to kind of really think about and have questions for. And so we will take questions in a few minutes. But our next speaker is um, is Diana uh, Bairdin, and Miss Bairdin is a dietitian. She's an oncology dietitian, and um, she. Uh, is going to be addressing, um, and she is with the Michael E. DeBakey VA Medical Center, and Ms. Burden is going to be addressing um, uh, nutrition and hydration concerns and tips. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague,
3: Ms. Burden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm excited to be part of today's presentation addressing um, nutritional concerns in the presence of renal cancer. Nutrition and hydration are essential in your tolerance to treatment and in providing you the energy to do the things that you enjoy doing. Um, During treatment, your diet might be modified just based on your unique needs. And um, a dietitian can help with uh, meal planning suggestions, um, give some more explanation on food choices to select if a change needs to be made and then a rationale as to why that change is being made. It's always important that you stay in communication with your healthcare team. Um each patient is very different just like we heard um just a few minutes ago in that um in our talk that you know some patients experience some side effects and some patients don't and we need to hear from you what you're experiencing to best serve you. So some of the potential side effects um, that have been mentioned also to include things like dry mouth, a change in taste, a decreased appetite, maybe even an increase in fatigue. And these are all things that um, we're here to help support you with and manage um, through your treatment. So even during your course of treatment, depending on what course you are going to best address your cancer, um, your nutritional needs may be elevated. Um, and so your dietitian can help describe how to best um, increase these calories and protein in your diet and even fluid potentially. So if you're not able to meet your nutritional needs, this can actually impact your overall health, and at times, potentially, you might be offered like an oral nutrition supplement, um, even little recipe ideas on how to fortify your foods to get the calories and protein in that you do need. Um, A poor nutritional situation can result in a delay in treatment. Um, and that's one thing that we work to try to avoid, and that's why it's so important that you stay in communication with your team. Um, something that's oftentimes a misconception with patients is they'll say, "Oh, it's okay. I have weight to lose. I'm overweight. I'm, I'm you know, I've been wanting to lose weight." And um, weight, from a medical perspective, and um, overall health and malnutrition are different things in different categories. And so just because you carry some extra weight doesn't mean you cannot become malnourished. And so um, malnourishment can happen when you aren't able to give your body the nourishment that it needs um, to function. And some medications and some treatments might expedite some of these nutritional needs. And so that would be a part and a change in your, your diet and in your meal plan but um whenever you aren't getting enough um, energy and protein in your diet and you lose weight very quickly, your body actually tends to use more protein or muscle mass for your energy. And so this can exasperate um, the fatigue and lack of energy, potentially even an increase of risk of falling. Um, so it's it's very important that you realize this isn't a time for weight loss that you've been trying to accomplish for a while, that it's about giving your body the nutrients it needs needs to function at its best. Um, there are some medications that will be able to assist with things like pain, um, nausea, diarrhea, just like we heard. Um, but you've again got to talk with your doctors and your healthcare team when these symptoms arise because the sooner you can address them, the better it will be. Um, if you are experiencing specific side effects when you're eating or after you're eating, keep a record of what, you've, what you have eaten, be able to bring that to your dietitian and your doctor, and the healthcare team can better help support you in a plan to um, alleviate some of the issues that you might be experiencing. Now, hydration is something that a lot of people forget about. And dehydration is very, very powerful in the sense that it can change the way you feel. Um, It can actually um, exacerbate some of the symptoms you might be feeling, things like nausea, fatigue, dizziness, Um, even your blood pressure can be affected by um, fluid. And just as a general statement, um, fluids are anything that is liquid at room temperature so, this includes things like water, milk, sports drinks, juice. Um, and a general guideline is most people need between 8 and 10 8 ounce glasses of fluid a day. That equates to about 64 to 80 ounces of fluid a day. Um, treatments such as radiation can actually increase your fluid needs. So, being sure to talk with your healthcare team about that um, so they can help guide you appropriately to meet your needs. Um, in closing, there are several members of the healthcare team dedicated to patients undergoing treatment for renal cancer, and know your team and how to reach them. So the sooner you reach out to them, the better. Thank you for allowing me to be part of this workshop. I'll now pass the line back over to Carolyn.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Diana. That was really wonderful and so informative and. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And um, I'm just going to say a few words about the service of Cancer Care. Um, so Cancer Care is a national organization, and um, we provide um, practical and financial assistance, counseling and support groups, and um, we do these workshops. And, of course, we also have um, many publications. We, Our staff, um, I'm an oncology social worker, and our staff are oncology social workers, um, all of them trained to work, social workers were trained to work with people living with cancer, with kidney cancer, with all types of cancer. And we help people of all ages. And so um, we also have a copay foundation, which kind of helps with some of those extra costs of some of your treatments as well. And um, also, if we don't have the copay that you need, we will definitely refer you to a, another copay foundation. There are many of them throughout the country. Um, In terms of the counseling, so we do talk to people on the telephone and online, really just someone to talk to who will listen to you systematically and really help you with your concerns or questions, perhaps about going back to work, um, about how do you talk to your children. Um, We do have a Cancer Care for Kids program and teens, helping children and teens who have cancer in their family, and really it's hard for them to understand how to respond and what is going on. Um, our support groups, we do them on the telephone and online. We, at the moment, have over 138 online support groups, and those groups are available to anybody anywhere in the world to some extent. Um, we do have um, both participants in this country and internationally, because an, on- an online group you can post any time of the day or night. It is facilitated by an oncology social worker, so, um, and people are screened for those groups. But many people find them very attractive, and they um, are groups for specific types of cancer, particular ages, so a young adult or an older adult support group, uh, for caregivers. So um, probably there's, a, there's something for everyone in those groups to some extent, if that's something you might be interested in. And the telephone support groups, similarly, people um, really appreciate that, especially many of you who have long distances to travel to get assistance, um, it's, it's kind of the assistance is right there. It's kind of you just, you just pick up the phone or you're on your computer and you're able to kind of get the help you need. So with that being said, and actually um, you can simply get that help by calling Cancer Care at our 100 number or visiting our website, Um, at uh, our website. You'll be getting, when the program ends, you'll all be getting an evaluation. And the evaluation also includes all these resources and information about how to get the help that we've described. And anything that any speaker has mentioned will be included as well in terms of just resources for you, of which there are many. But that all being said, now we do have time for questions. And I see people already posting questions, so um, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And at the end of the call, if we didn't get your question, I'll kind of go over with you how to get your questions answered. But um, I'm going to ask um, uh, Norma if she would explain to all of you how to queue up for questions. And we're going to again, we'll do our best to take as many of your questions as possible. Norma?
0: Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, at this time, if you have a question, please press star one.
1: And we have a question from one of our online participants, um, and this one is for Dr. Masal. Um, Since many cases of renal cell cancer are symptomless until the condition is 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 advanced or to have symptoms, should I get um, my kidney my kidneys checked often? Could you address that question?
2: that's um, that's a fantastic question Um, and there are two sides to this Um, number one is obviously we want to catch kidney cancer early enough so that it can be treated and ideally surgically removed before it spreads however um, at the population level, if we start just screening, even you know, with something as benign as an ultrasound, every person um, for kidney cancer, what's going to end up happening is that we are going to find a lot of incidental things. We actually have a medical term for it: incidentalomas, that look. Concerning, and we have to act on them, and we and we we do, and they end up being nothing um, that would would have ever affected your life um, on their own. But because we intervened, we actually do cause harm. And so um, the the number one motto in medicine, um, I would say, is first do no harm. And because of that there is a balance that has to be achieved for each patient. So for some individuals, screening might be warranted, and it depends on a lot of different variables. But for many, many others, it is not.
1: Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks. That's, a, that's a fantastic. Thank you. Um, and we have another question from one of our online participants. Um So the question is for Dr. Misal again um, about the side effects of neuropathy in terms of um, from treatment. Um, Are there ways to deal with that that might be helpful?
2: Yes, um, that's that's a wonderful question. And it all depends um, on what is causing the neuropathy and what is the different context for each patient. For example, some patients who have um, additional illnesses like diabetes, they're much more likely to develop neuropathy, and in those cases, our interventions might be different. Um, Patients who receive um, chemotherapy, certain types of chemotherapies can develop neuropathy, and there are certain drugs. For example, the American Society of Clinical Oncology recommends a drug called duloxetine um, that can be helpful in some cases. Then there are other drugs um, like pregabalin or or gabapentin that could help. Um, There are many, many different approaches And um, those are, again, individualized. And sometimes this is, again, one of those cases where I actually, when things get really difficult and complex, I solicit the help of my colleagues, um, you know, from either supportive care, um, integrative medicine, holistic approaches. There are many, many different ways that you can address such symptoms.
1: Excellent. Thank you. And we have a telephone question, Norma, I believe.
0: Our first question comes from Emile S. Your line is open. Taking a baby aspirin daily risk getting kidney cancer, especially if used in conjunction during the day with either Advil or Tylenol for pain management.
2: Ah uh, that's a great question. Yes, um when somebody is um taking analgesics um like aspirin and um non-steroidals the risk of kidney cancer does increase. That is true. But that does not mean with 100% certainty that you will um, develop it. So there are many, many different things um, that um, all of them conspire so that kidney cancer develops. So it's essentially always, for any, for any cancer, it's essentially a combination of genetics, genes that may be mutated, environmental um, triggers like for example the aspirin and the other analgesics and randomness so always randomness plays a role, you may have you know, a hereditary predisposition a strong one but it's always the, the, the random aspect that will end up being also important and so to, to answer your question, um, the vast majority of patients that actually take daily aspirin will not develop kidney cancer but some of them will and 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 uh, they will be at a higher risk and so if we can avoid um taking those um, those drugs, we should if however, given the clinical context for example, if somebody has a lot of um, has heart disease coronary artery disease, diseases that require daily use of aspirin, then you can't avoid it and once you balance the benefits um, and, and risks, um, you may decide that it is worth um, the risk of taking um, a daily aspirin and that's what very often is the case. Uh, the, my answer um, in many of your questions is always is, is individualized approaches and uh, it is true. Each um, patient is a different individual, and its its case has to be um, addressed based on the context. Excellent.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Emil. That was a great question. And our next question
0: um, comes from Sarah Bloomberg. Your line is open. Sarah B. Uh, hi. Um, this is for the dietitian. Are there any particular foods we should be having, or should not be having? Uh, having
3: the kidney cancer and the papillary type? That's a great question. Um, And I get this question often. Um, Well, what I like to remind patients is that eating as food, food as close to harvest as possible, is going to be the most nourishing food. And what you want to eat for is for nourishment. Um, Food, when it's overly processed and has been changed from its original form is different, obviously. And so what the American Institute for Cancer Research encourages is a plant-based diet, a whole foods plant diet based diet. Now, that's not the grocery store. All People are, think I, they need to go shop at a fancy grocery store, and that's not what this means. It, it's just having, if you want an apple, that you eat an apple. Um, restrictions around diet really comes with your individual needs, and that's where it becomes very personalized in meeting with your healthcare team to help understand what your needs are. There might be times that you increase something and that you decrease something, but the rule of thumb is as far as, far as what research has shown to be the most effective diet, and it's really through prevention, treatment, and survivorship, is a plant-based diet, and that's where about half of your p- plate comes from. A non-starchy veggie, so those are things like lettuce, tomatoes, cucumbers, bell peppers, onions. Um, And then a third of the plate coming from a a starchy food, such as wild rice or brown rice, whole grains, sweet potatoes, your starchier veggies like your winter squashes and things like that. And then the other third of your plate coming from a lean protein source. And some things about um, a lean protein source that I want you to know is, um, number one, it doesn't have to be an animal source. It can be a plant source. So you can do beans, peas, lentils, and combine that with your other plant-based foods and actually do um, an all-plant-based dinner or lunch or whatever meal you're having and then bringing in some of the cold water fish we know that um, cold water fish that is wild caught such as salmon tuna halibut herring sardines um, those fish contain a special ingredient known as omega-3, and it's a special kind of omega-3 known as DHA and EPA. That's just the form of the omega-3. But what we have seen with this type of omega-3 is that it can reduce inflammation and, um, and give a better overall health To to people. And so bringing these cold water um, fish into your diet is a great way to nourish your body um, and reducing inflammation. Um, Earlier there was some discussion um, about diarrhea and the use of probiotics. And you can actually get probiotics in your diet from whole foods. And we know that that's also very helpful um, with digestive health and um, the gut health in general. And those are things to bring in such as things like kimchi, sauerkraut that's been that hasn't been heated um there's kombucha tea that's very popular those are things that we know also help our gut and so um a lot of people think that they have to only get them from supplements and they don't same with the omega 3s it's actually we find that getting their nourishment from food is better um the other thing that I get asked a lot is about milk and dairy products. And there's no evidence-based research saying that milk and dairy products are not nourishing for us. Again, if you have lactose intolerant then you can modify your product or get a lactate-free milk. But um, But that's something that I get asked often. So there's no reason to avoid any whole food-based diet, item. Anything that's grown on a tree, is pulled out of the ground, um, that's as least modified as possible is recommended. Um, That's only for the reason that we know that those are the most nourishing forms of food. Um, When they're heavily processed, a lot of times those nourishing qualities are removed. And so that's where picking the oatmeal, the rice, um, those items that take a long time to cook. I always tell patients, look for the rice. It takes 45 minutes to cook. Same with the the oatmeal. You're going to get more of those antioxidants and phytochemicals in your diet because they're bound to the insoluble fiber, which is what gives food its crunch and its its texture. So I guess in summary, plant-based diet, Um, All foods um, in their whole form are incredibly nourishing. And the other thing is just get a variety of colors. We know that the color tells us a lot about the nourishing component of the food. Um, For example, red lycopene, orange beta-carotene, they aren't the only nutrient in there. They're just the ones taking the show. So variety of color um, is also something to remember.
1: Thank you. Wow, that was fantastic. Thanks, Diana. Thank you. And we have one, our final question, um, um, Norma.
0: Don C., you're in line is open.
2: Yes, uh, good day. I'm calling, please, in reference. Your information about the dietary issues was extremely helpful and welcome. Could you dovetail that by saying uh, and sharing with us, please, is too much protein, say, having chicken every day for 30 or 40 years, detrimental for your diet on the long run as far as renal issues, please?
1: Okay. And to, um, Dr. Miss um, Masao, do you want to address that first and then Ms. Fairton?
2: Yeah, I, I I would say that um, in, in general, as um, was already excellently described by our dietitian, um, a, a very important component is a balanced diet. So you need to you you need to have a balanced diet, and you should not do too much of anything. So you know eating. Chicken every day, for example, is not a good idea for your overall health, whether it's related to kidney cancer or not. Um, so keeping a healthy, balanced diet is what I always um, recommend to, to our patients. And with that said, I will um, let um, Diana um, discuss this more
3: Oh, yeah. yeah, I know. Actually, Dr. Massal is right. So, a balanced diet is really the key, and variety is really the key. And um, remembering that you're nourishing your body, and with as many varieties of food sources in their whole form that you can bring into your diet, the more nourished your body will be. Um, it's not that one food's bad and one food's good, but the thing is, each food has its benefit. And so, you want to inoculate yourself with those qualities as much as possible possible. possible. Um, At times when you are having um, challenges with your kidney, there might be um, a discussion about reducing the amount of protein in your diet. There also might be a discussion about increasing the protein in your diet. And so that's very individualized um, as well. But um, nevertheless, we need protein sources in our diet. And just getting the variety that we can um, is really the most beneficial way to do it for your body's health.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Well, you know, I have to say this has been a most amazing um, call today. I have to say um, all of you, our speakers have been phenomenal, so I really want to thank them. Um, Just amazing, um, just wonderful. Thank you so much. And I also want to thank... All of our participants have asked such great questions um, and really um, enhanced the call by your questions and, and um, our speakers, how they addressed your questions. We definitely could go on for a couple more hours, but I know this is supposed to be an hour call, so we're going to try to keep to that hour. Um, and I do want to remind all of you that um, I did say that I would let you know how you can get your, any other questions you may have answered. So we never want to sidestep, of course, your health, treating healthcare team. So certainly um you know do know that you can actually um you know speak with your um with your treating healthcare team that's really important um and they of course can address your questions even those of you who asked questions today um you know be sure to um check with your go back to your healthcare team with the information you've learned today um, but also, I often we are we have these two kidney cancer organizations on the call today we 'll give you those resources. but there, if you have further questions, I think because they specialize in this area and because they they both have call centers that you can contact, I would say that I would call either Kidney Cancer Association or Kidney Cancer Canada, um, and they both um, they both have websites as well with lots of information and I also always recommend the National Cancer Institute. Um, and we'll give you that information as well. They have an 800 number. And they also have um, a website, um, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature where you can post your question and they will uh, address it and, of course, recommend that you talk to your healthcare team. But we'll give you some basic guidelines as well. So with that being said, we don't want any one of you to leave the call today feeling that you're alone in dealing with renal cancer, any type of cancer. We want you to now know that there are many resources out there for you and that we're all here um, pretty much to help you and um, your healthcare team, of course, and then all of these resources that you're going to be getting um, when you get your evaluation, but you've probably gotten them already ahead of time in the materials you got from, from us before the call started. And I do want to let you know about a couple of programs we have coming up that I thought might be interesting to you, depending upon your interests. We are doing a program um, in, on April 8th on joys and challenges of pets in your home when you have cancer. So it might be of interest to some of you. Um, we also have one on caregiving for your loved one with cancer, and that might be very interesting to people on the call who are caregivers, or even people who are living with renal cancer or cancer in general, and want to know what's, you know, what what is it like? They may be their own caregiver to some extent, so that might be an interesting call for them as well. And lastly, we're doing a co- program calling "Managing Eye and Vision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments." That's on April 15th, and that may be of interest to you as well because sometimes there are some, um, you know, dry eyes. Um, Blurry, you know, just things that happen to your vision, you may lose your eyelashes, things like that, that you might want to have. Um, we have ophthalmologists on that call, and that might be very helpful to some of you as well. But most importantly, again, um, we have many programs coming up. You'll be getting information about them. And, um, and please, you know, contact us if we can be of help, to you. If you wish to take advantage of any of the programs I mentioned that Cancer Care offers um, with our oncology social workers, just give us a call. Okay, or email us. Um, Thank you all and have a wonderful day. Ladies
0: and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.